Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, a college professor and author takes on Darwin's theory of evolution. He reveals how some scientists are gathering the courage to question its scientific merit. They can look up this book, Life Itself, Its Origin and Nature by Francis Crick. This is the co-discoverer of DNA. And Crick himself says that he does not believe that DNA had a natural cause. He says it's too complex. He says, I see no natural cause. Basically, what he's doing is throwing Darwin under the bus. This podcast is supported by Paranormal Contractors. If you have unwanted paranormal activity in your home or business, it's time to bring in the professionals. Call them at 1-866-724-0800. 1-866-724-0800. Or email them at paranormalcontractors at gmail.com. Check out their YouTube channel, Paranormal Contractors for things that go bump in the night. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Monday. Jeffrey K. Lyons, PhD, the author of Evolution Myths, a critical view of neo-Darwinism, is standing by. Hope you enjoyed Coast to Coast AM. Sunday night into Monday morning, I had quite an interesting conversation with an Oxford University professor who believes aliens are here and walking amongst us. I also talked to a member of the Association for the Scientific Study of Anomalous Phenomena who joined me to discuss sliders. These are high-voltage people who wreak havoc on electronics and appliances and can cause electrical disturbances around them. If you missed it, why not become a Coast Insider? It costs just about 15 cents a day, and then you can download and listen to previous episodes at any time. Go to coasttocoastam.com. Now, I'll be back in the air chair on Coast to Coast AM June 14th, that's a Friday, Saturday, June 15th, and then again, Friday, June the 28th. While evolution and neo-Darwinism has become a kind of dogma across the sciences, a lot of the conclusions are based on inferences and guesses rather than actual evidence. 
According to Jeffrey K. Lyons, interestingly, Darwin never even used the word evolution until the sixth edition of his book on the origin of species and was critical of the term. Darwin argued that species are modified over time in natural selection, but it was the philosopher Herbert Spencer who pushed the term evolution, which Lyons finds is used in an unscientific manner. Jeffrey K. Lyons is a graduate of the University of Hawaii at Manoa and Regent University, where he earned a Ph.D. in communication. He has taught at Hawaii Pacific University, Argosy University, Honolulu, and Honolulu Community College. He has published articles in the Global Media Journal, Journal of Radio and Audio Media, and the Hawaiian Journal of History. He is the author of Evolution Myths, a Critical View of Neo-Darwinism. Jeffrey Lyons, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? I'm doing terrific. Thank you, Richard. Glad to be here. Let's start with some definitions. Now, we, we will talk about the fact that uh, the term evolution was never really used by Darwin until much later. But just for, for our own edification, let's define what we mean by microevolution versus macroevolution. Great question. So microevolution is very easy to see and observe. Um, for example, if you talk about dogs or if you talk about cats, um, it's very easy to see. There's a huge variety with uh, cats and, and the same with dogs, you know, different breeds of dogs. I want a golden retriever. I want a Rottweiler, so on and so forth. So that's a good example of microevolution macroevolution uh, is technically they call it above the species level so that's that's when uh, one species becomes a different species and then they can't interbreed anymore um, in other words dogs can make other dogs cats can make other cats but uh, you can't interbreed a, um, a dog with um, some other creature just doesn't work. Um, so <clears throat> macroevolution is uh, above the species level, and that's where um, other species, according to Darwin's, Darwin's theory, are created. So with, with microevolution, and I guess uh, the, the example would be, you know, Darwin studying these finches on the Galapagos Island, and he noticed variations in beak size. Uh, some had thick beaks, some had thinner yeah, beaks. Yeah, yeah, that one's been around for a long time and well talked about, well documented, and and sure, you know, the, the, the finches had different beak size and they were given different reasons, and there's another one about moths in uh, London and adapting uh, lighter to darker color moths, and that's fine, but uh, at the end of the day, it's still an example of microevolution. The finches are still finches, right. uh, whether the beak is long or short. And the moths in London, they're still moths, whether they have dark wings or light wings. Exactly. Uh, the real question is, um, you know, macroevolution, and, and, and that's the more difficult question. Well, I, did, I just wanted to come back to micro for a moment, because is, is there new information being added to the gene pool with a mutation like that, or is it something that's, for example, every finch has it in its capacity, I suppose, to 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 develop a different uh, beak size, or is it new information being added to the gene pool? 
Well, I mean, that's a that's a terrific question. In terms of the finches, I I don't have an answer because I haven't looked looked at that. Um, However, and and remember, of course, Darwin had no idea that there was even something called the gene pool. Genetics had not even uh, wasn't even on the table. Um, that research had not come out, um, so Darwin wasn't aware of it. He had a different idea about how traits were passed on, and that entire chapter in his book uh, is wrong. Um, but if you go back to microbiology. Um, I can address that question um, because there's a lot of in- interesting information there about gene pools uh, and uh, even at the microbiology level. All right. Um, maybe we will have an opportunity to circle back and drill down on that a little bit. A bit. But I just wanted to first you know, establish micro versus macro. And then right. the other question that jumps out is, uh, you know, why someone with a, a PhD in communications, not a, not a science background, would, would uh, enter this arena? Well, I mean, it's a perfectly valid question. And uh, I have a, a good friend, uh, Dr. Ralph Cam, who said, hey, well, why'd you want to write this book? Why did you spend seven years writing this book, um, Evolution Myths, Critical View of Neo-Darwinism? And basically, the, the reason I wrote it was because when I looked at the social sciences, when I looked at um, uh, just, just various areas of research, um, it became apparent that... Um, this is no longer a biological theory. I mean, you can see it in astronomy. You know, the, the, uh, the astronomers talk about evolution, and, and you can see it in psychology. There, there are people that call themselves evolutionary psychologists. Psychologists. You see it in sociology. So it's in the social sciences. My field is in the social sciences. So I said, aha, okay, you're in the, you're in the field where I am, you're open to criticism, you're open for me to take a look. So what I argue in my book is that evolution is no longer a biological theory. It has become what researchers call a meta-theory. It's just a fancy word for saying it's a theory of theories. It's, it's stepped outside of biology, and it's touching on all these other fields. It's almost become a religion, wouldn't you agree? Well, yeah. I mean, in terms of ideology, uh, a lot of people would would, would say it has because um, those that adhere to it strongly adhere to it, and uh, it's very hard for them to hear the criticism. Um, but the, what I did in my book, I've got over two hundred seventy-five sources, scholarly sources, and these are people who are scientists. Many of them who. Um, adhere to evolution. Now, they adhere to it publicly, but then when you dig deep into the research, into their scientific articles, into their books, what you find out is they've got, they've got questions about it. They've got problems. Uh, that They say, hey, this hasn't been addressed, and we, we really have an issue here. In fact, uh, what we're finding, there, there's actually a, a survey, of, not a survey, a um, a uh, uh, a thousand scientists have uh, signed a petition. Petition's a correct word, and they're saying, "Hey, there's problems with evolution in Darwin's theory. 
and and we should we should begin to do some additional research and question what's out there. And that's that's just look for petition and Darwin and evolution. You'll find it. It's on the internet. It's out there. As you point out in the book, Darwin never used the term until I think it was the sixth edition of Origin of the Species. But for for nearly four decades, he never used the term evolution. So who who came up with that? That's absolutely correct. Um, Darwin uh, wrote his book in 1859. That was his first edition of On the Origin of Species. I actually had a much longer title than that. It wasn't until his sixth edition, as you say, in 1889, that Darwin actually used the term evolution. So 37 years went by, and and, uh, Richard, probably a number of your listeners, you know, they may not be 37 years old, or maybe they're just a few years past that. I mean, that's a long time to wait to to use that term, evolution. The person who came up with that term was a philosopher, and he was not a natural scientist like Darwin. And Darwin, was, Darwin studied barnacles for four years and wrote a book on barnacles. Uh, you know, how exciting is that? <laughs> I, actually, I actually bought a copy of the book. Um, and that's the kind of person he was. I mean, he really was a scientist. And uh, But anyway, Herbert Spencer was a philosopher. He's the founder or the father of modern sociology. So people out there in your audience that are sociology majors have probably heard of him. But it was Spencer who came up with the term evolution. And um, Spencer um, promoted the term Darwin um did not like the term at all. He was he was highly critical of of that term, um, and I and I talk about this uh, in the first chapter of my book. Um, but uh, Spencer used a different methodology than Darwin did, and I know I'm throwing out fancy terms here, but methodology is basically you know how scientists go from A to B and make conclusions. How do they gather the evidence? How do they um, make sense out of the evidence, and then how do they report their findings? Well, Spencer did not use the scientific method. Um, Darwin did. Um, Darwin used a method uh, that was developed by a philosopher named Francis Bacon that lived uh, in the 16th century, and that's how we get our uh, modern uh, scientific method. You you do research. You uh, you gather data, you crunch the data, you report the findings, and then you put it out there. And you use a hypothesis, and you test the hypothesis. That wasn't Spencer's idea of uh, doing research. Spencer basically just said evolution's true because it's true. So I know it sounds wild, but that's what he did. And, and what Spencer did was he used a, a, a methodology that philosophers call deductive reasoning, which means you go from something general, uh, evolution is true, to something specific. Uh, Something specific would be um, dogs came from something prior to dogs. Darwin went from something specific to something general. That's the scientific method, and it's called inductive reasoning. I know I'm throwing out a lot of technical terms here, but um, this is easy to look up. The difference between inductive and deductive reasoning. And and Darwin um, 
he was oh my goodness um, he he was so against Spencer um, that he uh, uh, t- he c- he couldn't take it for thirty seven years and then I guess Darwin's uh, you know towards the end of his life Spencer was out there speaking public he was pushing his views and um, and the irony is that Spencer's term became much more um, much more. Uh, common and and so he he had to um i guess i guess darwin succumbed to it and uh, so today he, the irony is today we all uh think that uh, evolution uh was advanced or the term was uh, created by a uh, Darwin, but it wasn't. It was created by Spencer. So then in origin of the species what was was darwin positing that germs can become great apes? Or was he strictly talking about adaptation, natural selection, and variation within a species? Well, Darwin's theory was called descent with modification. Probably you haven't heard of that. I have not. Well, that that was his theory. His theory was not called evolution. It was called descent with modification. And uh, so he did posit that there were that there were uh, simpler creatures, and that over time something called natural selection, uh, which Spencer also changed that term, and then Spencer called it survival of the fittest, um, and then that term caught on. But Darwin said natural selection was the the driving factor or the force behind descent with modification. And that over time, things, uh, creatures change. Now, the, the idea has been around prior to Darwin. Lamarck had, um, was a scientist that advanced a similar idea. But Darwin uh, proposed uh, natural selection. And uh, Lamarck uh, said, well, it was the environment and time. And people just, that didn't bite. So prior to Darwin, it was, it was uh, uh, a, um, a creation but creation was the prevailing view, more of a biblical kind of view. Um, and uh, Darwin introduced natural selection and said, no, no, the creation is not a part of it. There wasn't a creator involved. It was a natural process. And that was the radical change. That was the radical change. Let me, let me just read you real quick what Darwin says about Spencer. He says, nevertheless... I'm not conscious of having profited in my own work by Spencer's writings. His deductive manner of treating every subject is wholly opposed to my frame of mind. His conclusions never convince me, and over and over again, I have to say to myself after reading one of his discussions, here would be a fine subject for half a dozen years' work. And Darwin's saying, uh, Spencer, you talk about a lot of subjects, but uh, why don't you write about something else? <laughs> That's kind of what he's saying there. <laughs> the yeah, it's really funny how scholars take a stab at each other. Darwin goes on and says, his fundamental generalizations, he's talking about Spencer, which have been compared in importance to persons uh, with Newton's laws. Here he's being sarcastic. He's saying, Oh my goodness, 
Spencer, you, you, you're so grandiose in your, um, in your statements that some people are uh, comparing you to uh, uh, Newton, uh, you know, the, one of the greatest, if not the greatest scientist that's ever lived. And, and, and it's tongue-in-cheek. Darwin's making fun of him, which I dare say may be very valuable to a philosophical point of view. Of such nature, they do not seem to me to be of any scientific use. Now, get this. Darwin is saying that Spencer's ideas do not seem to be of any strictly scientific use. And then he explains why. He says, they do not aid one in predicting what will happen in any particular case. So that's the thing about the scientific method. You've got theory, you gain, gather information, you, you crunch the data, and then you're able to say, you know, did it, was the hypothesis supported? Or was it not supported? And then can you make a prediction? And Darwin's saying, well, this idea of evolution that Spencer's put out there, it has no scientific use, and you can't even make any predictions. And Spencer, you're a smart guy. Why don't you write about something else and stay out of <laughs> biology? Right, right. So, a pretty, yeah, a pretty, Darwin was not a fan of Spencer. <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, it's a pretty damning critique. It is, and that's in Darwin's own words. That's in his very own words. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I'll get back to my conversation with Jeffrey K. Lyons about evolution in Darwin in just a moment. Stay with us. So the other night, I went out for drinks with a colleague, and he was stunned when he learned how old I am. No way, he said. Way, I responded. What's your secret, he asked. And then I told him what I've been telling you for the last several months. My secret? Life change tea and formula 13 teas from getthetea.com. You see, they work from the inside of the body, providing a gentle cleanse every day that helps support people with constipation, indigestion, acid reflux, and bloating. And cleansing the colon is key because good health starts with good digestion and a healthy gut. And people say I have clearer, healthier, younger looking skin. And I can absolutely confirm that I have seen a dramatic increase in my energy. How do I keep looking and feeling so young? Life Change Tea and Formula 13 Teas. Organic, non-GMO, caffeine-free herbal teas from GetTheTea.com. Order yours today. Use the code word UNLIMITED and your first purchase ships for free. Life Change Tea and Formula 13 Teas from GetTheTea.com. Theoretical physicists say that there's as many as 12 hyperdimensions. Here are just three of them. Conspiracy Unlimited, Conspiracy Unlimited, Conspiracy Unlimited. Pretty cool, huh? Uh, here's an extra one. Conspiracy Unlimited. Hey, how about one more? Conspiracy Unlimited. And the great thing is we have six hyperdimensions left. Conspiracy Unlimited. Five. Or something like that. I'll ask Richard later. Now, back to my conversation with Jeffrey K. Lyons, PhD and author of Evolution Myths, A Critical View of Neo-Darwinism. I'm not a, a biologist, certainly, or a geneticist, but uh, I mean, 
the idea that a mutation uh, can get, you know, passed on from from one generation to the next, and right, right. when I when I think of a mutation. Uh, I think of something that is generally, it could be very innocuous, like an eye color. It could be something harmful or it could be something fatal. So how does a mutation, you know, turn germs into humans? Uh, That's a great question. That is a great question. And uh, what what I'm going to do here is I'm going to turn to the National Academy of Sciences to, to try and answer your question. You're going to love this. So I have, a, I have a book in front of me, and I'm surrounded by about 30 of my favorite books. And this book is called Science, Evolution, and Creationism. It's written by the National Academy of Sciences Institute of Med- Medicine. And uh, there's a lot of real smart people that, that wrote this book. You can actually download it free online and get a PDF. I actually bought a hard copy, but you don't need to. So the book's out there, Science, Evolution, and Creationism, National Academy of Sciences, Institute of Medicine. They wrote it. So so here they are trying to answer your question, and, and they go back to how life began and, and how, um, how these traits are passed on, this sort of thing, and they're trying to trying to say that evolution is a fact. Now, listen very careful in this quote. Listen for these phrases. No one yet knows the word might, the word if, the word could, the word perhaps, and the word might have. Because the thing about evolution is that, and this is why myself, as a scholar of communication, this is why I'm studying it, is because it really is more of a story. It's a narrative. It's not so much scientific fact as it's a story. So here they are, the National Academy of Sciences. They're trying to explain the origin of life and how this thing got started. And they say, no one yet knows which combination of molecules first met these conditions. But researchers have shown how this process might have worked by studying a molecule known as RNA. Researchers recently discovered some RNA molecules can greatly increase the rate of specific chemical reactions, including replication parts of other RNA molecules, if a molecule like RNA could reproduce itself, perhaps with the assistance of other molecules, it could form the basis for a very simple living organism. If such replicators were packaged within chemical vesicles, whatever those are, or membranes, they might have formed protocells, early versions of simple cells. Changes in these molecules could lead to variants. And it goes on, and they say natural selection would begin to operate. Well, this doesn't sound very convincing. <laughs> a it, lot of ifs, really buts, and woulds. What a coulda, shoulda. What a coulda, shoulda. And these are the smartest scientists in the United States saying that evolution is a fact. And so I kind of, what I did was I used these words and the, the words that I, I, I kind of emphasize in my reading, uh, might, if, could, perhaps, might have. Okay, now imagine you're a prosecutor and you're trying to convict a defendant of a crime. Okay? Right. 
and 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 so you're doing your summary at the end of the trial we've all seen those on television and the prosecutor stands up and says ladies and gentlemen of the jury you've heard the evidence of this case presented even though no one yet knows if mr smith committed the crime i ask you to return a verdict of guilty in fact mr smith might have committed the crime <laughs> further he could have been at the scene of the crime and we could be certain of the facts if someone saw mr smith at the scene of the crime on the night of the innocent of the incident perhaps mr smith is guilty because he might have committed the crime you know this is the best they have the smartest minds in science and this is the best they have so to get to your question about you know gene pools and how was it passed on from one generation to another oh my goodness they don't even know how life got started they have absolutely no idea i mean it's laughable it, right. it, it, it truly is and i'm not pulling any punches here um one of my goals as a university professor and it was right there in our syllabus on the first page um was to teach students to use higher uh, critical thinking skills use critical and i, I know your, your audience is a smart audience you got a smart group of people out there so you, it, it, you, all you have to do is look at the literature on evolution from the people that believe in evolution and advance evolution and you can see um the holes in it um let me give you another example of, of traits being passed from generation to generation. I just did my uh, genealogy, and I was at, personally, I was able to trace it back to um, uh, the Mayflower. So I'm a Mayflower descendant. But that took a lot of work. I had to trace, you know, this person married to that person, this child, that child, this birth certificate, so on. Okay, so I can go back to 1620. It's going to be 400 years next year. But they're talking about going back millions and millions and millions of years. Can, can, can we say for certainty that this, any creature that we can trace, this is their, their parent, this is their parent, this is their parent, this is their child, going back millions of years? I mean, it, it's actually absurd. It, 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 it's just not possible. Um, right. Where right. are the records? Where are the people that observed it? Where was it written down? You know, I mean, it's hard enough. It's hard enough for someone to trace their ancestry back to, um, you know, the Mayflower or, or any, you know, exactly. major event. Exactly. In, in the past. Um, now you're in Canada, and something really amazing um, happened in Canada, um, and this was okay. This was in 1954, okay? Uh, there was a discovery um, in 1954 and a paper published, and it was uh, at the Schreiber Beach, Ontario, on the north shore of Lake Superior. You probably know where that is. I've been around Lake Superior, yes. I haven't been to Schreiber Beach, but I know, I know the north shore. So this is absolutely amazing. Okay, 1954, I wasn't born. Um, so they're actually looking for oil. Schreiber Beach, north, uh, uh, the north side of Lake Superior, 
and there's a gunflint formation that overlooks Lakeshore, Canada. And, and this revolutionized science came right out of Canada. Today, um, they found microscopic life, fossilized life of bacteria back in 1954, going back two billion years, two billion wow. years. And uh, they examined these rock samples. They were sliced to point zero point zero three millimeters, and they examined it under the microscope. Now, were these guys looking for um, microscopic life? The answer is no. They were actually looking for oil or coal. Yeah, actually coal. <laughs> so it was complete serendipity. They found this. And, and then, oh, my goodness, they found microscopic life. And what it was was bacteria bacteria and what we found what scientists have found they've actually found other samples in australia other parts of the world bacteria as old as 3.5 billion years uh, since 1954 and they've found that bacteria were the first forms of life on earth but get this bacteria have not changed since they first appeared on earth 3.5 billion years ago it's kind of they haven't Wrap evolved. Wrap our heads around that one. No change. Well, they haven't. Point five. Yeah. They have adapted because now we know they can become yeah. resistant to antibiotics. They've adapted, yes, but absolutely. they haven't changed. They haven't changed. But that's micro. That's the beginning of our conversation. That's microevolution. So the bacteria are still bacteria. They, exactly. They do adapt and they do change, but they're still bacteria, and and and. And so essentially, and, and Darwin's, Darwin's theory said that they change into another species over time, so on and so forth. Um, uh, they even talk about a LUCA, the last universal common ancestor. But bacteria, which we know about, which is ex everywhere, um, essentially hasn't changed. Um, cyanobacteria is the rock star. Um, what is cyanobacteria? It, it, we call it blue-green algae. Ah, uh, yes. But it was, yeah, it was around for a billion years. And you know that stuff we breathe in every day that keeps us alive? Yes. Oxygen. <laughs> <laughs> Heard of it, yes. Cyanobacteria made the oxygen. Wow. It took cyanobacteria about a billion years to make it. But life... The life we have today, the oxygen we breathe, we, we wouldn't even be alive if it were, were not for bacteria. So, and it's kind of funny. I mean, why get excited about bacteria? Because, you know, we, mostly we think of stuff like strep throat, and that's a, that's a type of bacteria. And other, E. coli is another type of bacteria, but cyanobacteria, it's still making oxygen today. Well, the, the cool thing about bacteria is because they have such a short lifespan that you could, yeah. you know, people say, well, you can't study uh, you can't study evolution in a lab, but you could because you could study, you know, tens of thousands of generations under lab you conditions of, of, of E. coli, of E. coli, for example. Perfect example, perfect example. And they've done that. And what happens is that the bacteria remain bacteria. The yes. bacteria don't change. They don't change and do something else. Um, now you could get 
you can find study after study that says, well, they, 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 they work in colonies, they start to communicate with each other, they work in groups, and yeah, they do cluster, yeah. But there's a, <clears throat> there's a, a distinction between a, a cell called bacteria, which is called a prokaryote. It's kind of a weird word. Prokaryote. And the type of cells that are in our body, okay, those are called eukaryotes. And the big difference between the two is prokaryotes, what's in a bacteria, they have no nucleus. Hmm. There's a number of other things that are different, but that's the, that's the big one. When you look up the definition on, on uh, Encyclopedia Britannica, very simple. Prokaryotes, bacteria, no nucleus. The types of cells in our bodies, they do have a nucleus. Evolution um, does not have an explanation for this. The evolution has no explanation for how life got started, and they have no explanation for how life went from bacteria to the types of cells in our bodies. The types of cells in our body are as, as large as 500 times uh, larger, and they use up far more energy, um, up to 200,000 times more energy uh, than bacterial cells. I mean, the, it's, it's just stunning how different these, and uh, the cells in bacteria are asexual. They, they reproduce by something called lateral gene transfer, and I'm not going to try and explain that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a family but, show, please. <laughs> yeah, it's a family show. But, the, but the, the, the cells that are in our body, the ones with nucleuses, they reproduce through sexual uh, uh, reproduction. So, it, it, I mean, it goes on and on and on. Right, that's a big problem. Big problem. There is a theory out there called endosymbiosis. I know I'm throwing a lot, of, a lot of scientific terms, but someone could easily look that one up. Endosymbiosis. Lynn Margulis, she passed away. She was a biologist that came up with this theory. You're going to love this one, Richard. You, your listeners are going to love this. So how did the larger, more complex cell, the type of cell that's in our body, how did it come about? And you can see this, it's endosymbiosis, look it up. Okay, it's got a picture of one little bacteria. I'm not making this up. One, a picture of one bacteria, it bumps into another bacteria. Then kind of like a Pac-Man, one bacteria swallows the other bacteria. And then no one knows how, suddenly it becomes a cell with a nucleus. Well, um, that argument just doesn't fly. Um, it's actually uh, quite, quite laughable. Um, yeah, they're taking quite a leap there. Oh, it, they're taking an enormous leap. And, but it's like children's cartoons. But you see it on major university websites. You see it in high school textbooks. You see it in university textbooks in the major universities. Look at it this way. Here's, here's the criticism, and these come from people that are evolutionary biologists. Um, Lane and Martin, 2010. Here's what they say. Put another way, a eukaryotic gene, okay, that's um, 
that's the type of uh, cell that has a nucleus, eukaryote. Commands 200,000 times more energy than a prokaryotic gene. That's, that's the type of um, uh, gene that would be in an amoeba. 200,000 times more energy. So they say, the implications for complexity can hardly be overstated, whereas prokaryotes, that's bacteria, frequently make starts towards eukaryotic complexity. They rarely exhibit more complex than one trait at a time. Then they go on to say eukaryote common ancestors increase in genetic repertoire 3,000 novel gene families. So, okay, one bacteria swallows another and suddenly the genes become 3,000 times, um, they create 3,000 times new gene families and they have 200,000 times more energy and the cell is 500 times larger. How does that happen? Well, exactly, because (laughs) when I hear that, what what comes to my mind is physics and the law of entropy and all things tend towards decay and yet if everything is sort of decaying and slowing down and getting less energy and less energy where does this new energy input come in order to you know uh, grow new limbs where there weren't limbs before etc where is that energy coming from if all things tend towards decay how does a bacterial cell eat another bacterial cell and become a cell with a nucleus like the types of cells in our body. And even more troubling, the DNA gets recoded. And they ask the question, where did the complexity and the coding information come from? There's no theory. There's, there's, a, there's this cartoonish example or theory called endosymbiosis. But here's the thing, it's never been observed in nature it's never been observed in a laboratory the theory's been around since 1970 it's in all the textbooks and they're holding on to this theory but as the research progresses and microbiologists really dig into what's going on inside of cells they're finding uh-oh uh, this theory doesn't hold and so it's a big problem, but they're not going to tell undergraduate school students at, at a university that uh, we have no explanation for how bacteria became a cell with a nucleus. I mean, in my book, I call this the three barriers to life. And I mean, first barrier is just to get to life. We, we, we read the you know the conclusive you know right this happens it couldn't happen (laughs) biogenesis life begets life but they want us to believe that well in the beginning there was no life and then there was life yeah and abiogenesis uh basically past pasteur um said the spontaneous generation didn't uh he, he proved a number of years ago over a century ago that 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 wasn't the case um Interestingly enough, because you mentioned biogenesis and, and I mentioned Pasteur, um, there was a, one of the co, um, 
discoverer of DNA. His name is Francis Crick. Now, he wrote a book, which I hold right here in my hand, Life Itself. And I hope some of your listeners, and I know they are, your listeners are critical thinkers. They're smart people. They can look up this book, Life Itself, Its Origin and Nature, by Francis Crick. And I checked this out at a local university, and it could be in a local university right there in Canada. This is the co-discoverer of DNA. And uh, Crick himself says that he does not believe that that, um, DNA had a natural cause. He says it's it's too complex. He says I see no natural cause. Basically, what he's doing is he's he's throwing he's throwing Darwin under the bus, um, or at least Spencer, saying, <laughs> or at least Spencer, yeah, or at least Spencer, exactly, exactly, and uh, and that's 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 really interesting. And so, well, okay, but we are alive. So so if it, if it, if it wasn't. Um, if it wasn't uh, um, naturally caused, then how do we get here? And uh, interestingly enough, and you probably had this because you've had a lot of guests on your show. Um, he says it was panspermia. Right. That's what. That, yeah. <laughs> right. Crick says, you know, but you got to come up with some kind of explanation, and uh, and that's the way he went. So on the cover of his book, he's got the Earth. Then he's got a little uh, asteroid circling the Earth and then hitting the Earth. It's either an asteroid or a little spaceship. And he thinks that uh, the Earth was seeded with, with life somehow from somewhere else. Um, it just, in, in a way, and I know you've had guests on it, um, on this subject that have delved into it much deeper than I, but, um, you know, again, if, if you don't believe it's Darwinian cause, you've got to come up with some other cause or you or you go with some faith faith based cause that there was a creator. Well, um, there's, yeah, there's I mean, a the, limited list. Of how exactly. We got here. Well, the problem with yeah. panspermia is, OK, so the bacteria got here from somewhere else. But but that doesn't explain how we got here. And even if we were. Uh, you know, we came from another planet. Did how did we get there? Did we evolve? Uh, so we're right back to square one. And exactly. And the the other thing that I there's a there's a wonderful book written a number of years ago. I can't remember the title, but the idea was if you look at the human body and the complexity. You mentioned DNA, right. and we haven't even talked about consciousness and speech and these things. Now, the right, brain, right. the brain, more complex than any computer we could ever conceive of, uh, and yet it's almost—it's like that. This book made the analogy, that you know, this idea that we are random. You know, imagine a tornado touching down in a junkyard, and it assembles a seven forty-seven Boeing jet. And that's not even, I mean, we're more complex than a Boeing 747, but that's the, I think it's a brilliant yeah. analogy. Just ridiculous to think about, you know, that, 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 that something that random, a tornado could touch down in a junkyard and put together a jumbo jet. Exactly. It, it, it just, it, it, well, it becomes absurd. Um, in, in many ways, um, if you look at just the bacterial cell, the cell that scientists have said, 
has been around for 3.5 billion years. A bacterial cell is more complex than um, the city of Toronto, the city of London, the city of New York. Um, how can that be? Well, yes, it is more complex because scientists have never been able to construct a bacterial cell. Um, engineers, laborers can build Toronto, New York, London, but nobody can build um, a cell. Now, there's always people out there who say, well, give it time, they'll figure it out. Well, they haven't. So, um, you know, if, if they do, that will be interesting, but, but that has not happened. Then there's the, the issue of irreducible complexity. I mean, the human eye, this wonderful right. organ, uh, I mean, without, you know, if, if, it, if, if it wasn't formed instantaneously exactly the way it was, it wouldn't work. Why, did we have creatures walking around with inoperating uh, eyeballs? I mean, it's, talk to me a little bit about that, that conundrum of ir- irreducible complexity. Well, the human eye is a great is a great example, and uh, of course, Michael Bay he is the one that uh, put out uh, that term uh, irreducible uh, complexity in his book uh, Darwin's Black Box, um, and uh, it, it really uh, goes back to the argument by design, and uh, that argument uh, has been around for for uh, quite some time, and. Uh, Actually, the, uh, the philosopher uh, Richard Dawkins, he mocks the argument uh, by design in his book, The Blind Watchmaker. Uh, probably your listeners are familiar with, with that book. But irreducible complexity is just a modern version of the argument by design. And that argument says that um, if, for example, if you're walking along a beach and you see a clock, and you pick up the clock and you, you examine it, that, um, that there's a designer behind it, that there's a designer behind it, that the watch didn't just pop up out of the beach. Irreducible complexity says something uh, as complex as the flagellum, which propels the bacteria, uh, which has been compared to a motor, um, that, that if all the... You, you need certain components or it would never work. It would never work at all. And uh, really what it does is it points to a designer um, because there, there are no steps um, prior to that. You need all these components to make that flagellum work to propel the bacteria. Um, it's also been compared to a mousetrap. If you don't have the certain parts to the mousetrap, it just won't work at all. So there's many different ways to look at that. But, um, yeah, it, it's the argument by design, which was uh, Paley, P-A-L-E-Y. He was the, he was the person that, that put out that, that argument. Darwin was aware of the argument by design. In fact, he read about it in his studies um, at an undergraduate level. And he actually liked Paley's argument. Um, and, and I think that's why Darwin himself um, mentioned the creator in his book. It's, it's so interesting because people try to um, separate Darwin and say Darwin's science, religion, religion. And when you're walking around on a university campus, it's okay. If you want to talk about religion, go over and talk to those guys. 
in the uh, religion and philosophy department. But if you want to talk about science, um, you can't talk about religion. Uh, you can only talk about science. Um, they try to separate the two. But look what Darwin says. This is the very, I'm holding his book right in my hand, The Origin of Species. The very last sentence of his book, he says, there is grander in this view of life with its several powers having been originally breathed by the Creator. There capital you go. C. Mm-hmm. There into you go. a few forms or into one, and that whilst this planet has gone cycling according to the fixed law of gravity from so simple a beginning, endless forms, most beautiful, most wonderful, have been and are being involved, evolved. Did anybody ever tell me when I studied evolution at the university that Darwin talked about the Creator? Nope. Nobody told me. All I had to do was walk into a bookstore um, and buy it off the shelf. <laughs> I mean, people can do that in Toronto. <laughs> we can. <laughs> we can. And we are bipedal. Yeah. <laughs> we are. You are bipedal. <laughs> and in the chapter, because you mentioned the eye. He spends a whole chapter on the eye in On the Origin of Species, and he says, look, if, if anybody can come up with facts that um, show that uh, my theory doesn't, uh, doesn't uh, hold up to the facts, he said, I'll throw out my theory. That's what a true scientist would do. Exactly. And he talks about the eye, and he talks about um, how the eye formed, and what is so interesting in his conversation, when he when he talks about the I, he mentions the Creator. <laughs> there you go. There you yeah, go. Very interesting. So, um, Darwin himself, he never um, he never uh, said he was a religious person. I do not believe he was a religious person, um, but he did not shun using a topic like creator. In fact, I think if Darwin had tried to submit what he wrote, um, he, he probably would have gotten rejected from modern, modern journals today because you mentioned creator and you, you just can't do that on a university campus uh, in the context of science. That's just, um, that's just not allowed. That's not permitted. That's, we're we're going to shut you down. Jeffrey, it's a it's a good place uh, to end this. We didn't have a chance to address consciousness and language. Well, I'd like to have you on again because uh, we're just really just barely scratching the surface. But but uh, in the meantime, how can people get a hold of Evolution Myths: A Critical View of Neo Darwinism? The book is on Amazon.com. It's on BarnesandNoble.com. Um, you can go to my website, Jeffrey K. Lyons. Um, it's uh, that's all it is. It's my name with my middle initial, JeffreyKLions.com. You're going to see blogs there with some of the information we've talked about. Um, there is a forum if people want to interact, they can they can jump in there. Um, I do uh, look at comments, and uh, I uh, am very interested in hearing feedback and, and addressing. Uh, uh, people's questions. I am not a biologist. Um, that is true. Um, but as I mentioned, uh, this is a topic which has become a meta theory and it touches the area of communication and really the evidence when you get down to it for evolution 
it comes down to storytelling and how well you can tell a story. Evolution Myths, a critical view of neo-Darwinism, Amazon, and also go to jeffreyklyons.com, Lyons spelled L-Y-O-N-S, jeffreyklyons.com. Jeff, a great pleasure. Thank you for this. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on. Appreciate it. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be right back with a few words about the next installment of Conspiracy Unlimited. If you're a fan of this podcast or my weekly radio program, The Conspiracy Show, or my YouTube channel, Strange Planet, I hope you'll consider becoming an official donor. A donation of $50 a month places you in the star chamber. $20 a month is the whistleblower tier, and a donation of just $10 per month makes you a truth seeker. Star Chamber and Whistleblower members can participate in an exclusive monthly online chat or video conference with me. And all donors are entered into a monthly draw for Strange Planet merchandise. Any monthly amount is welcome and greatly appreciated. To become an official donor, go to patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Coming up next time on Conspiracy Unlimited, a broadcaster describes his near-drowning and out-of-body experience as a child and how that led to his lifelong interest in NDEs. And I uh, waded out too far, stepped off this ledge, and suddenly I was sinking. I came up once and screamed for my mother. I was terrified. When all that air from the scream went out of my lungs, I just sank, sank down to the bottom of the lake. But suddenly I found that I was sitting up in a birch tree by the cottage, watching as my mother, who had fortunately heard me, ran down the stairs and down to the shore in her red dress, dove in, (laughs) found me, dragged me out, and um, threw my body down over a log and was pumping on my back, almost uh, invented CPR, because of course back then nobody knew CPR, but she figured she needed to get the water out of my lungs, as she explained later. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. <laughs>